Let's get into the Word. I have a very happy Mother's Day message this morning, tongue-in-cheek. We will be able to apply it to moms a little bit as we talk about Tamar, but as we're in the book of Genesis, we are watching human beings just like you and just like I, I, just like me. Wow. One of these days, I'll get grammar correct. Um, Human beings just like us, failing over and over and over again. And then just as we've already sung the first three songs this morning, overwhelmingly the theme was love, which I love because even this morning, the, the main thrust, if we just keep this word grace, God's grace over your mind as we read through this passage to begin with. There is light at the end of this, but we're sitting in the misery of a family this morning again. So, before we sit in that misery, let's pray, but we're going to be in Genesis 38 if you want to make your way there. Heavenly Father, we really do love you tremendously, and as we say that word, you're our Father. We come to you as Dad. That brings us great comfort and peace and strength and purpose. We come to you as as siblings, Lord. Each one of us underneath that umbrella, each one of us recipients of your incredible love. And you place us where you want us, within your body, within your household. But each one of us, we come to you as your kids. And because you're our dad, we come to you and we ask for help. We ask for money. We ask for education, knowledge. You're our provider in everything. We need you. You're our dad. We look to you for protection and provision and and leading and understanding and wisdom. So we sit in your word this morning. We're looking to you for instruction, for leading, for the provision in today, Lord. Whether it's your spirit, whether it's a word from you, whether it's a a direction that we need, let us hear you this morning. And in our hearing, Lord, let us be obedient in response to you because you deserve it. You're worthy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to read through this whole chapter. And if you're not familiar with this already, um, you'll get to see the misery of it. But again, keep... Keep this idea of grace. It's hard to see in the midst of the story, but keep that over your mind. And I'll point out why as we go through the message this morning. So chapter 38 of Genesis. It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son, and called his name Shelah. He was at Kizib when she bore him. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. And it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he omitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord. Therefore, he killed him also. Verse 11, then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, lest he die also like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted. And he went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira, the Edulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, 
and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which was on the way to Timnah. For she, for she saw that Sheila, wow, lots of S's, was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, please let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, what will you give me? Uh, will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, what pledge shall I give you? So she said, your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. Then he asked the men of the place, saying, Where's the harlot that was openly by the roadside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also the men of the place said that there was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, Let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed, for I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. And it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. So she was brought out. She sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, Please determine whose these are, the signet and cord and staff. So Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Shelah, my son. And he never knew her again. Now it came to pass, at the time for giving birth, that behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it to his hand saying, this one came out first. Then it happened as he drew his hand back that his brother came out unexpectedly and she said, how dare you break through, or not how dare you, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. And there you go. Happy Mother's Day. Delightful, pleasant story. We've been in Genesis for almost a year. And as we've been in Genesis, we have watched one painful circumstance after another painful circumstance in the lives of human beings. Just last week, as we began Joseph's story in chapter 37, we're watching the conflict between he and his brothers. And that conflict of jealousy and hatred was to a point in his brothers where they wanted to kill him. And Judah's the voice that stands up and says, hey, guys, let's, let's not kill him. Let's sell him. And so they end up selling him into slavery. Those traders take Joseph down into Egypt where he becomes the servant of Potiphar. Now, this chapter here, 38, it's, it's kind of it's an interruption to the flow of the story because in chapter 39, it turns right back to Joseph. So we have to ask ourselves, why did God puts that story in his word for you and I to sit down today and read through it. Because I'm going to keep this totally PG. We're not going to go sit in the, the, the foulness of this story much at all. Um, it's, it's disgusting. It's a, it's, a, it's a horrific passage in regards to human relationships. The things that we witness in here ought not to be. But remember, keep this umbrella of grace. Because it's, it's God's grace that is going to lead us to this position of justice this morning. And that's what I've titled this message. So one of the main thoughts of why we believe that this passage is in here is to give us a contrast between Joseph and Judah. So next week when we get into chapter 39, we're going to watch the shining and powerful character of Joseph as he remains yielded to God 
as he resists the temptation of sexual temptation where we watch Judah pursue it and turn into it in this chapter. So one, it helps provide us this contrast between Joseph and who he is in relationship with God in contrast to his brothers, what's going on in their life and the future restoration that we're going to see. But also in the national life of the children of Israel, we have out of Judah comes who? King David. Out of King David comes our King Jesus. So as we look at the foundation of Judah, he's the fourth born son of Leah, and his name means praise. And our first real introduction to his behavior was selling his brother for money. Bad. Here our second introduction is bad. But it's going to be out of this man, and in this, out of Tamar, and those twins, out of Perez, is going to come David. So we're going to watch God bring about grace, bring about justice in the lives of these people as you sit in the entire context of God's word. But not only are, is, does Judah become king when you sit in who Joseph is. So Joseph is the son that receives the birthright. So his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, they receive the double portion blessing in this household when dad Jacob passes on. And then again, you fast forward into time, the first king of Israel was Saul, and he was a Benjamite. Because of his sin, God stripped the kingdom to, from him and gave it to another, David, who is of the tribe of Judah. And then we'll talk a little bit about Solomon this morning. So David's son Solomon becomes king, but in his wickedness and his evil and him turning his heart towards idolatry, God says that he's going to divide the kingdom, but not during Solomon's life because of David's sake, but because of Solomon's sin, he's going to divide the kingdom. And while Solomon was king, there was an agitator in the community, and his name was Jeroboam. And Jeroboam is of the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim is of Joseph. So when Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam becomes king, he says that he's going to be much harder than his dad. And this, this is the point where the kingdom divides. So the descendants of Judah, the tribes of Judah and tribes of Benjamin in the south, remain kings over that authority over Jerusalem, the place where God chose to place his name. The northern tribes come underneath the authority of Joseph, underneath the authority of Ephraim, underneath the authority of Jeroboam. And Jeroboam's great sin is he doesn't want the people going to Jerusalem to worship God. So he creates, he makes these calves. He puts one in Samaria, the other one in Dan. And now the nation of Israel, those ten tribes, their hearts are continually turning towards idolatry. They never have a king who is right in God's sight. So as we come back to our chapter here in 38, the themes, the structures, the relationships that we see here, these carry forward throughout the rest of the word of God. So this is foundational. Genesis, again, a chapter of beginnings. But here, so it comes to pass, Judah's the one that suggested that the brother be sold. They've communicated to dad, you know, here's, the, here's his garment, um, communicating to dad, helping dad think that Joseph is dead. And we don't know the, the conflict that this is causing amongst the brothers. But our assumption is Judah leaves the household and he goes north to Adula, which is about 10 miles away from the rest of the family to the north. So he leaves, he departs. It's literally that he goes down. And when he's there, when he pitches his tent there, takes up residence there, he sees a Canaanite. Now, when God first called Abraham earlier on, who was in the land? The Canaanites were in the land. And again, this is just giving us testimony to the nature and the character of the inhabitants of the land in contrast with what God had called Abraham to do. And if you remember from chapter 18, God called Abraham and he gave him a command to instruct his children in righteousness and in justice. And these two words are going to keep coming up over and over again today in righteousness and justice. In that righteousness and in that justice, it's not to be intermarried with the people of the world. It's to marry those and to be one with those who look to the true and living God as their God. And here, by choice, 
He chose a certain Canaanite woman. Now, this is where we start seeing the threads that reach forward. So she's the daughter of Shua, literally in the Hebrew, it's Bathsheba. So the thread that carries forward to Bathsheba in David's life that he sins with and ends up having Solomon through. Again, there's lines that throw forward because she's also called by the name Bathsheba later on. And not only those other threads, those threads carry through to Ruth, to David, to Jesus. Again, all of this is carrying forward. So he is in a position of rebellion to his father. He's in rebellion to his brothers. Ultimately, he is in rebellion to God. And he's making decisions on his own. And he chooses a daughter of the land, which is clearly just indicative of what's going on in him internally. Um, It can be indicative of just what is going on in his life as he carries forward here. They have three sons together. And of these three sons, this is important here in verse 6 because it says that Judah took a wife. So as we sit in this culture, a lot of what we're sitting in the text, these are cultural things that are 3,500 years removed that are total, they're, they're foreign to us. But in taking a wife, Tamar is bought She's property. A bride price has been paid for her. So she is now the property of Judah's family. So he bought this young woman to be the wife of his son. And this is important because as you carry forward through the story, when he just emphatically says burn her, he has that authority over her as her judge because she has violated the covenants and the agreement that's going on in this community. So he's taken this woman to be a wife for his son. Now this we sat in a little bit last week as we looked at God calling for a famine. God destroying the provision there in the land to force the nation of Israel into Egypt in the first place. But does this sentence, God killed him, make you uncomfortable at all? Is God just? That's, that, is a, that is a question that you have to answer for yourself. I emphatically say yes. So based upon who God is as creator based upon who he is as lawgiver, based upon who he is as kind and compassionate and holy and gracious, enduring, long-suffering, based upon who he has declared himself to be, based upon who I have seen him demonstrated to be on the pages of the word, and based upon who I have experienced him to be in my own life, I can emphatically say that God is just. So when I run across passages like this that are extremely difficult, I can't wag my finger at God and say, God, you did something wrong here. So in that foundation that God is just, we have, our reason says that Ur deserved in God's justice, in his holiness, in his righteous, in his love, Ur deserved death. Is that comfortable? Now this, is, now, this is the imagery that we have to sit in, and this is the reality that we have to sit in. The result of sin is death. Sin leads into death. This, the wages of sin is death. So every single one of us, we are staring death in the face. Whether it's near, whether it's far, we have a day where we all know that we are going to, these bodies are de- going to decay, and we are going to cross over that threshold but that crossing over that threshold that event it's the result of sin all Adam and Eve did was did something that God said don't do that and that alone deserved death so when we sit in this personally we are sitting in the testimony of God's word every single one of us deserves to be killed by God, to be executed by God. We don't know what Ur's sin was. We don't know why God lets some sinners just be free in their sin their entire life and have a wonderful, glorious life in the flesh. 
And God never executes them and gives them the just desserts of their behavior. And then others, it seems that they just do one little thing and then God just axes them. So we don't have his mind, but we know that his mind is pure, it's holy, that his actions, what he does is always just. So in the mess of human beings' lives, and this is where all of us, we can sit in the mess in some context or another. As you sit in your own personal home and upbringing with your parents, you can look back at grandparents and see their influence, maybe great-grandparents and see their influence. You can look at your siblings. You know all the private dysfunctions of your own family. So you may not be able to sit in the depth that is going on in this chapter. Or maybe you can sit in a lot worse. But in the spectrum, whether it's really, 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 really bad or it's just a little bad, it's just a little disobedience. In the midst of it all, we're sitting in a, in a passage, in a message that this, this, this chapter, apart from the justice of God, through the grace of Jesus Christ, makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. It is absolutely miserable. But in Christ, and this is the continual proclamation of the gospel, in him we find redemption. In him we find transformation. In him we find life and hope to, even though these mistakes are bringing about destruction, that he can bring about life. He can bring about his purposes. He can bring about his plan. And this is where it gets to the identification of our God, his love. He loved us so much. Before he even created us, he chose to become like us for the sole purpose to die for us. This is what we do as we're remembering communion week after week, that he stepped into our mess. And every single one of us, when we stand in the righteousness of God and what that is, every single one of us deserves the same death that Ur suffered outside of Christ. And here, it's this, uh, this is called a levirate marriage. A levir is a Latin word, which means husband's brother. So in the culture at the time, right, she is the property of Judah and his family. The older brother dies without having a child, without having an heir. So it is in this culture, it's the younger brother's responsibility to marry that woman and to have a child and that child will be considered the child of the, the dead brother. This is, this is again, you can sit in Deuteronomy chapter 25, which is later on uh, in, in history from this. So we don't know all the specific nuances because um, um, it's a little bit different than what's going on in Deuteronomy 25. Just so you know, there's other historical writings of laws of different lands. Um, what's going on here specifically doesn't really fit nicely in any one of those boxes. So we can't define totally clearly exactly what's going on other than it is Onan's responsibility to produce an heir for his dead brother. And Onan's sin is the sin of selfishness. He's willing to use Tamar for his sexual pleasure, but he's not willing to fulfill the role and responsibility that that relationship is based on in the first place. And this is where just the whole theme of this chapter is that of sin. And all of its different forms and all of its different ooh factors. We're watching the product of sin in these individuals' lives. And here, it's Tamar is the one that's sitting in this. We don't know anything about her personality and her character. She's assumed to be a Canaanite also. She's from an area where, um, you know, the Philistines are in later on in the word. So it's also an assumption that she probably has a foreign God, that she's not worshiping the true and living God herself. Maybe through Judah, maybe through uh, Jacob and the community, she's had um, exposure to the true and living God. We don't know any of that. But here we just watched a father, Judah, two of his sons just died because of sin. A woman, a wife, Tamar, has just watched two of her husbands die. 
And Judah, in relationship with her, not only does Judah own Tamar in this culture and in this context, it's not just he can do whatever he wants with her. He has a role and responsibility to provide for her, to protect her. And here he's being neglectful in his responsibilities to Tamar. I'm not going to do what I'm supposed to do because I'm fearful of you know, you're poison to my sons. Or something. I mean, he's fearful of her character in some fashion. So go and remain. Go sit down in your widowhood, in your desolation, in your misery is what Judah is doing to Tamar. And that is exactly contrary to the heart of God throughout the word. Who does he tell us to protect and to help? The widows. What is a widow? She is a woman who is abiding in desolation. In this culture, at this time, a woman had no means to provide for herself. She is at the sole discretion of husband and husband's family for her provision. So now, Tamar, go home. Make sure everybody knows you're a widow by being clothed in your widow's garments so that the whole culture knows that you were sitting down in your widowhood. And I'm just going to keep going on and living my own life and being neglectful in what I know that I'm supposed to do. And then in the misery of this family, Judah also loses his wife. And in the midst of that, it says that he was comforted. So there's an idea that he's already gone through his mourning period for his wife. And he's already been comforted. He's through that mourning process. And then there's the other idea that he is still seeking to be comforted. Um, and that's why he ends up turning into Tamar. But here, the sheep shears, this is, a, this is a time of festival. It's a time of celebration in the culture. They're going to Timnah. You can sit in the life of Samson. Samson went to Timnah. That's where he asked his parents for that daughter of the Philistines. Um, so there's a lot of similarities that you can tie in those accounts. But here, uh, Tamar, she is sitting in her widowhood. She is sitting in being neglected and she is determining to take things into her own hands. So she takes off her widow's garments, which are conveying to the culture that she's a widow. And she puts on these other garments that's gonna convey to the culture that she's a prostitute. Now, when you sit in older commentaries, most of them, and when I say older commentaries, prior to uh, the feminist movement in our, in our culture, when you sit in those commentaries, they're all negative towards Tamar and her character. They say that she's being impatient, that she is abiding in unbelief, she's a deceiver, she's a temptrix, and ultimately what she is doing is immoral. In more modern commentaries, again, especially in our culture, post the feminist movement, most are looking at Tamar as more of a hero, where she is, she is abiding in injustice in her life. So she is defending herself. She's taking initiative. She has strength of character. She's being courageous. She's daring. She's being shrewd. She's sh showing skill, and she's being decisive. Now, where do you sit in the mess of her life? It's ooh, right? But in this chapter, we have God, we have the Lord, we have Yahweh show up and kill two men because of their wickedness, because of their evil and the displeasure that their lives caused to a holy God, God executed them in whatever fashion. But in regards to Judah's behavior and in regards to Tamar's behavior, God is totally silent. Why? You think he, do you think he's condoning their behavior, saying it's okay? So ladies, it's all right to, to emulate Tamar's behavior. Guys, you know, your wife just died and, you know, you've gone through your mourning process and you're not remarried yet. And, you know, you got needs. It's all right if you go into a prostitute. Is that what God is saying here? It's not what he's doing. So just because the Lord is silent in this particular passage, he's not silent in the rest of his word. So we're watching again the misery of people's lives. And in the midst of this misery, we're going to watch grace. And we're going to watch God bring about his justice. So in this, as he turns into Tamar, 
He doesn't know it's her. If he knew it was her, he went in to pursue that, uh, that act. Um, but he's totally fine with her being a harlot, which in this moment in Judah's life, he's looking at Tamar, not knowing that it's Tamar, uh, that she's useful to him in the circumstance that he's in, right? And again, as we sit in the idea of sin, we're watching sin progress in his life. Because as he interacts with Tamar, what does she ask for from him as a pledge? Give me your signet ring, give me your cord, and give me your staff. So a signet ring, there's thousands of these have been recovered in archaeology. It's, it's, a, it's a round cylinder that has engravings on it that as you roll it in clay, that becomes your signature. And they're hollowed out in the middle because they were worn around the neck. That's the cord. But what she is asking from him is give me your identity. The, the cord, give me, and again, this would be in an ornamental type necklace. Give me your possessions. And the staff, the, it's, it's the same word for a scepter. Usually these were, these had the, you know, they were carved and had ornaments on them too. But this is your power, your, your position in the community. Give me your identity. Give me your person, give me your possessions, and give me your power, your position in the culture. He was willing to give everything to turn aside to this woman just to gratify his flesh, regardless of what excuses he had. In that moment, he found this woman useful. And again, this is a shame, this is an honor-shame culture. So as now he's trying to fulfill the obligation of sending the goat, because this is the payment that he agreed to, and he wasn't able to find Tamar, he's worried about shame. And again, there's, in, my, in my Bible, it says, you know, let her take those things for herself. He wants those things back. That's his, that's his signature card. Again, these are, these are important objects to him. And it's pretty much, if I don't get those things back, I am going to be shamed. Judah has a position in the community. And if he, if he doesn't make good on the payment that he agreed to, and this woman ever comes to the public and say, hey, this is what we did, and here's his stuff, and he never brought payment, he's going to be shamed by a prostitute. So in this culture, like this is, it's all seedy. It's not good at all. But time passes by. It's three months down the road. And the testimony that comes to Judah, you know, this is post-celebration time. The, you know, he's probably back home in tents, whatever's going on in life. It comes to his attention. Somebody tells him, look, your daughter-in-law, your property has violated the covenant. She's pregnant with a child from harlotry. So however, however it's come to you, Tamar, you're obviously pregnant. You know, she's probably having interactions. She's in her father's household. So the stories come out. This is what she did. The story's getting back to her. She pretended to be a harlot and that's how she's with child. What's Judah's response? Burn her. Now, in the Old Testament, there's a couple of sections that talk about burning people. And in that, there's, there's, there's special context where, like, a daughter of a priest turns towards idolatry and adultery and those kinds of things. The burning is typically thought in history to be that the person was stoned to death first and then their body was burned. But regardless, what do you think about Judah's heart? Out of the heart... The mouth speaks. So out of Judah's heart, we've already heard, don't kill the boy, sell him. Let's get some money. Out of the heart, I want to be comforted, so I'm going to turn aside into a harlot, into a prostitute. Out of the heart, somebody else's sin, I'm okay. I've, I've sold my brother for cash. I'm sleeping around. I'm doing what I want to do, but I see sin in somebody else's life. Kill him. Burner. Vicious, brutal heart of Judah. So in the account, as she is being brought out to be executed, she brings out the signet and the cord and the staff. 
And here it seems like there's a distance between she and Judah in the sense that Judah doesn't seem to be present in this moment because she sends them to him. Whosoever those things are, the identity of the person, the possessions that this belongs to, you know, the power, the leadership, the, the position in the culture that this staff represents, that's who I'm pregnant by. So you, Judah, you determine who those things belong to, and that's who I am, whose child I am pregnant with. And what determination does Judah make? It's me. But what is the statement that he makes? Tamar was more righteous than me. Now it says, you know, they don't, now that it's exposed and, and all this kind of stuff, the, the children that come out of this, they're the legitimate sons of Judah. So culturally, what is going on? Tamar's behavior wasn't seen as harlotry. And again, the, the word that's being used, the first word when he sees this harlot and he turns aside, it's the word for prostitute. The other times that it uses the word harlot in the, pastor, uh, in the past passage, it's talking about a cult, a, a cult prostitute where it's a religious action in religious behavior. Um, what Tamar did and Judah's ignorance to it and again, this is where we're confused in, the, in the, the laws of the culture at this time and what was going on. Because in other cultures, there are circumstances where the father-in-law does have sex with the daughter-in-law to produce the heir for the dead son. So that seems to be what happens here. So in the midst of all the weirdness and the sin and the ooh and the complications and the just the evil, wicked hearts... This is the message that God is bringing out of this. And his message is his righteousness. So this is what, we brought this up before when we were in Genesis 18. So when God was looking for Abraham to instruct, to teach his children to do righteousness and justice. The words are sedekah and mishpat in the Hebrew. And these are words like we should know. We know agape in the Greek. Agape means love. These are words in the Old Testament that are consistent. They're used over and over and over again. Sedekah as righteousness. It means blameless conduct and integrity. As a noun, it's dealing with justice, right actions, right attitudes as expected from both God and from people. One of the major categories it sits in is in honesty and loyalty in conduct in the community. When it's dealing with the idea of justice, it's looking for not only a human judge and king, but also for God to execute justice which this is the definition for justice. I love this. It's the elimination of anything that breaks peace and justice is the preservation of good order. So not just in community, but in relationship. Righteousness in action in our lives is to eliminate out of our lives and out of our relationships anything that is breaking peace between us. It is to be intentional in preserving good order in our relationships. Righteousness has this idea of it's, it is justness in, in, uh, from God as a divine judge. So as we watched him judge Ur and Onan, that was justness. That was God's righteousness. Community loyalty. As a verb, as in action, the righteousness that Tamar demonstrates here by definition means that she was just, she was innocent, she was put right, she was justified, she was declared to be right, and she proved herself innocent. So again, this is where it's hard in the mess of her life, in the mess of Judah's life, how do we sit in judgment because ultimately, this is what we're asked to do. As you make judgments in life, 
that those judgments would be done according to the righteousness of God and the justice of God. Well, how on earth can I do that? I can't judge a single one of you with the heart of God because I am missing pieces out of the context of your life. I don't know what's going on on the inside. I don't know what your life experiences are. But as I try and sit in judgment and some behavior in your life, we can sit in the word and we can walk through these things. This is right. This is wrong. This is where you're off. But in that offness, I don't really know the reasons why. I don't know the depth. I don't know the complications. I don't know all the nuances. But who does? God does. He knows them all clearly. And this is the thread. So this is God is bringing about in this circumstance. Tamar is the one who is declared to be righteous. As they move out of this, we don't see anything further of their relationship. But when these children are born, we're introduced to this scarlet thread. And this is powerful. Because these sons are being born out of what? Being born out of the midst of sin. There's, there's, there's no other word for it. These lives are missing the holiness and the righteousness of God. These children, through no action of their own, this is how they were brought into being in this world. And it says that one of them sticks his arm out and he gets this scarlet thread tied around his wrist and pulls it out. Then the other brother comes out first. So the younger brother is the one who comes out first, Perez. And again, Perez is the one who becomes, is a descendant to David, is a descendant to Jesus. So in the mess of life, this is the family that Jesus told, uh, chose to identify with in all of their mess. But the scarlet thread, as you carry forward to that that word in the Bible, as you follow out the nation of Israel, that scarlet thread shows up again when God gives them the instructions to build the tabernacle. And the fabric that is woven as a covering over the tabernacle, one of the threads, one of the colors is the scarlet thread. Now remember, we're really in a study of Hebrews. Is Jesus better than the tabernacle? That scarlet thread that's in the tabernacle, it's pointing to Jesus Christ. The priest's garments that he is wearing has that same scarlet thread woven into it. We're watching in the last chapter the garment that Joseph is wearing that is identifying him in the culture and elevation over his brothers. We're watching the garments of the widowhood of Tamar. She takes them off. She puts on these other garments of a harlotry. Again, the garments that the priest is wearing, it's, it's filled with symbolism and imagery. That scarlet thread, again, it is ultimately pointing to Jesus Christ. The next time, and again, Hebrews, is Jesus a better high priest? He's better than our religion. He's better than a place. The next time you see that scarlet thread is when the nation of Israel has been freed and redeemed from their slavery in Egypt. All of this is sending them to Egypt. Now when they're delivered out and they're finally coming into the promised land, what does Rahab, the harlot, hang out of her window? Scarlet thread, scarlet cord. Another woman... Life filled with sin and harlotry. Here's the testimony about who the true and living God is. And says, I want that. I want him. And that harlot, Rahab, becomes another woman that our God chose to be one of his ancestors. Identifying with that woman. Turn to Isaiah chapter 1, because ultimately this is what this scarlet thread is pointing to. So in Isaiah chapter 1, here you've got the Lord calling Isaiah, giving him words to speak to the culture. The words that Yahweh, the God who created the heavens and the earth, is giving to his servants 
Isaiah to go and communicate to his people, the children of Israel, is you're sick. From your head to your toe, you are filled with corruption. You are filled with sin. You were filled with injustice and unrighteousness. Go and tell this people, I hate your religion. Your sacrifices are an abhorrence to me. The service that you are doing to me is a burden to me. It means nothing because all you're doing is going through some religious motion. You're doing whatever you want behind the closed doors of your home. You have no relationship with me, but you pretend like you do when you come into the public space. And this is the heart of God that he instructs each one of us to come to him. And it comes in verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. How does Judah wash himself? I'm serious. How does Judah wash himself? How does he cleanse himself from selling his brother and slave? I can't imagine that. How does he cleanse himself to breaking his dad's heart? How does he cleanse himself from abusing Tamar? How does he cleanse himself of the hatred? And these are, again, these are just little segments. How do you make yourself clean? How do you forgive yourself? How do you stare at yourself in the mirror? How do you go throughout your day clean? The scarlet blood of Jesus Christ. You make yourself clean by being obedient to the one who created you which means that you can only come to him in his righteousness, through his righteousness, which is provided through his blood that he shed on that cross. That is his promise. So when the Bible, when God instructs us to wash ourselves, it's not just go and make yourself clean and do right and now you're a good boy and now you have righteousness. It's, no, you come to me as your God and I will make you clean. Wash yourselves. Make yourself clean. What are we supposed to do? Put away the evil of your doing from before my eyes. And again, in context, they're doing the public stuff, but it's the private stuff where it's, it's the deep-seated issues of life. Put away the evil of your doings. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart, our bodies, we do things. Put away the evil thing from before the eyes of Yahweh. Cease to do evil. And this gets back into, I told you I'd bring it to Mother's Day in some context, but it's learning to do good. When you first looked at Jesus Christ as Savior, did you know how to do good? Did you know how to do relationships? How to change heart, mind, words, and actions towards God and towards other people? It's learning. Learn to do good. It's a process. Learn to do good. Seek with intention. What? Justice. Because God is just. All that he does is just. So we are to seek his justice, his clarity, his righteousness, his right actions, his honesty. Seek his justice in you first. Because this, again, this is where the attention is. And then as a community, we will loyally with one another walk forward in Christ, in righteousness and in justice. Rebuke the oppressor. And that's what Judah was. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. And here's God's heart. Come. Right now, come. Let us reason together, God says. 
Do you have issues with God? Do you have issues with your life? Do you have issues with other people? So God wants you to come to him. Let's have a conversation. Talk to me. Don't hide. Come to me. Let's reason. Let's reason through your life. Let's reason through your heart. Let's reason through your death. You and I deserve Ur's death. You and I deserve Onan's death. And God's saying, come to me. Let's reason through this. I've promised you life. I've created you to be like me. I want you to be like me. I will make you like me. But you have to come. You have to think. And here's the thread. Your sins, what are they? They're like scarlet. But what shall they be? They shall be white as snow. You're covered in your sins like scarlet, like being a murderer that is covered in the blood of that violence. But they, you, will be totally cleansed as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And then what imagery do we have of Christ in the book of Revelation when John sees him in chapter 5? I saw a lamb. And the imagery of that lamb was as though he had been slaughtered. When our king comes back in his righteousness and his glory and his holiness, tells us that his robe is dipped in blood. It's his blood that makes us white, that gives us hope that gives us direction to march forward today in relationships with one another that often sit in the deep pain that we just saw in chapter 38 of Genesis. And here it is. If, this is the if statement, if you are willing and obedient, faith without works is dead. Faith and works work together. If you are willing, if you believe in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, he will help you learn to do good. He will immediately take your scarlet sins and make them white as snow. And he promises you shall eat the good of the land. And ultimately that promise is all wrapped up in who he is as king. And even as you sit in Isaiah, the entire prophecy of the future restoration that is coming through Christ, powerful. But... The contrast, if you refuse, which is the contrast to a willing heart, and you rebel, which is the contrast to an obedient heart, you won't eat the good of the land, but you'll be devoured by the sword. Your death will be just. And verse 20 ends with, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The mouth of Yahweh has spoken. This is where we just sit in the seriousness of our own lives. We sit in a lot of damaged relationships. And again, traveling through uh, Genesis this time, it's been really evident and apparent of the hurt that goes on in households and friendships in the community and how bitterness grows because there's a lack of forgiveness, there's a lack of pursuit of one another, there's a lack of restoration. Hatred grows, sin grows, reconciliation is something that's totally foreign. So even in the midst of the church, as believers, come, let us reason together. God is looking for righteousness and justice in your life. Not for you to develop it through self, but he's looking for his son to be king and Lord in you, in your heart. Which the churnings and the meditations of this, of this thing in our chest and our mind and all the connections that are going on spiritually, it's what comes out of this. It is, what, it is the words that I speak it is the actions that I do, but for me personally, it's, it's just, am I, am I at peace in his righteousness? Yes or no? Right now, my fellow human being, 
in your soul, in your heart of hearts, are you at peace or are you in torment? If you are in torment, and when I say the word torment, you know what I'm saying. You know what torments your mind and your heart. You know what causes you pain. You know where you're in rebellion. You know where you're off. You know where you've damaged relationships. You know who's damaged you. You sit in that torment every single day. It's not right. God's word to you is to come to him through his son. Whether you're looking to him in faith for the first time and Lord teach me. Or you're coming to him for the 200th time saying, Lord, extract this out of me. Change me. Sanctify me. You've already promised me your righteousness and your justice. And I want to live it out in peace and ultimately in love. So can you see how justice, God's justice is flowing out of the destruction of our lives in that example in Genesis 38? Where here you're sitting in death. The death of sons, the death of a wife. You're sitting in the sin and all those, just death and destruction. Burn that woman. And in the midst of that, God's righteousness enters in. His grace enters in. And when his righteousness, through his incredible grace, enters into our life, no longer does death flow out of us, but now life is flowing out of us. Life is being experienced by us. We're abiding in his life. And in his abundant life that he's providing us, what do we have? Joy and peace and righteousness and justice. He's incredible. Worship. I am so grateful for your love, Father. 20 years ago, you exposed yourself to me. Twenty years ago. You stripped my garments of darkness, of crimson, of scarlet. Twenty years ago, Lord, you clothed me in your righteousness, your holiness. The war that I was abiding in against you. I raised up my white flag, Lord, and I surrendered to you. I surrendered to your love. I surrendered to your life. I surrendered to your cleansing. Surrender to everything that you are. I let go of my sin. I let go of my shame. I let go of those things that bound me, that hurt me. And I stepped into your glorious light. And Lord, you know what the last 20 years have looked like. I've failed a lot but you have always been there to wash me in your righteousness. You have been a perfect father to me. I freely call you Lord. You've protected me. You've provided for me. You have transformed me. Out of my heart, Lord, pours great gratitude and thanks for you.
Above all, Lord, you've given me this incredible hope that there is a day coming when you're coming back. Death did not hold you, but you were victorious over it in your resurrection. And that same power that rose you from the dead is the same power, you, who lives in me, who lives in us. I pray for each soul that's in this room, Lord. Let them know your love. Let them know you, Lord. Let them surrender to you. Let them be free. Let them be at peace. And let them willingly and obediently walk with you and talk with you and love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.